0: This is Archive Atlanta, Episode 94, Epidemics, Part 3. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey guys, happy Friday. This week I am covering the final installment of our Epidemic Disease series – I did not expect a part three, but I had a mini episode all ready to record um, about pellagra and I thought, you know what, why not take this and then throw in two or three more epidemics that were still left on my list, even if I cover them briefly, you know, here we are. So one episode where you can learn about typhoid, pellagra, and HIV AIDS and their impact on Atlanta. We're going to start with typhoid, which is a bacterial infection that can lead to fever, diarrhea, and vomiting, and it's caused by a bacteria, Salmonella passed through contaminated food and drinking water, and in the early days of most cities when sanitation and public water systems were lacking, typhoid was typically a death sentence. So you know we have salmonella now and it's not something you think of in causing death, but I mean I talked about this in the uh, water and waste episode. Elena was really struggling with cleanliness here, especially in certain neighborhoods. You've probably heard of the infamous typhoid Mary, who was an Irish cook in New York City that is believed to have infected 51 people, three of whom died. But more importantly, she was the first person in the United States that was identified as an asymptomatic carrier of the disease. And this kind of blew everyone's mind because they didn't know it was possible to infect people without showing symptoms. And typhoid Mary is a whole other story in herself. She did not want to be quarantined or she would not be quarantined. Um, She was jailed against her will. I think she ended up dying in jail. The whole story is crazy. Um, One of my favorite podcasts called The Bowery Boys, which is New York City history, they did an entire episode about her. Just like all the diseases we talk about, typhoid was around for decades before it ever reached epidemic levels in Atlanta, which happened in the first decade of the 20th century. The city watched other countries and U.S. cities deal with the disease. And so all Atlantans were particularly interested with the sensational typhoid Mary newspaper articles. Um, and in 1910, Atlanta city officials were contending with our ongoing sanitation problem. In 1908, the city had 89 cases of typhoid reported in the summer months. And by the following year, the sanitary department instituted an ordinance. And so this ordinance said you have to cover your trash and you have to remove animal manure in a timely fashion. Two things that sound, you know, pretty common sense to us, I think, now. Um, but having even having a trash can wasn't exactly standard across the city. Um, and then covering it was not exactly a standard practice. The evils of the typhoid fly were very real, and medical professionals understood that open, festering garbage cans in the southern summer sun were a breeding ground for disease transmission. There was little um, jingles and sayings about how to kill flies or that you should kill flies, understanding again that flies were transmitting germs quicker than anything else. In 1909, typhoid cases dropped to about 67, so everyone is really encouraged and felt like that the new ordinance was working. But they were having a very hard time getting Atlanta police to enforce the new rule. And this feels very similar to our mask discussions today. Um, But 1910 Atlanta doctors are like begging people to cover their trash cans. And they're urging them in the newspapers They're like this very simple act. It can save lives if we all work together. If we all cover our trash cans, we can practically eradicate typhoid. By 1911, there were 163 cases and 40 deaths, and among them were prominent and wealthy Atlantans. There was a young newlywed and former debutante whose family lived on Peachtree Street. There was a former judge. So this wasn't always targeting um, poor or minority neighborhoods. I think that if that was the case, white Atlanta would not have been as up in arms. But the fact that it seemed to be indiscriminate, um, you could be from a wealthy family with good personal hygiene and still suffer from typhoid. Also very similar to today, European cities were blowing the U.S. out of the water with their efforts to lower their typhoid cases. Dr. C.A. Johnson, who is an African-American doctor in Atlanta, writes an editorial printed in the Constitution. And in the most diplomatic fashion, he chastises Atlanta's sanitation efforts. He's like, look, I go into the homes of white and black families that are living with people in rooms that do not see the light of day. There is trash dumped by both private citizens and the city. And what the city would do is it would fill a ravine or a low-lying lot with trash. And he says, he's like, it's always in a quote-unquote Negro section. A typhoid vaccine was developed in 1896 by a British bacteriologist for use of British soldiers during the Boer War. Typhoid was a huge killer of military men and it's actually, it was a greater threat to be killed by typhoid than to be killed in combat. So the British are the first to vaccinate all of their men and therefore the first army to keep most of their soldiers alive from typhoid. In 1909, a U.S. Army physician adopted the vaccine for use with our military forces, and two years later, all enlisted members were inoculated. So this takes us into World War I, and the soldiers in nearby Fort Gordon or Fort McPherson, um, they were coming into Atlanta, and they were given immunizations. Um, So what I found really interesting is that any local business in Atlanta that sold military supplies um, or products to soldiers had to have all of their employees vaccinated. And I read something about white provisions, which the building is still on Howell Mill today, all of their employees were inoculated because those products would go to Fort Gordon. Typhoid would continue to affect Atlanta into the early 20s with a high point again in Fulton County in 1923. But once we transitioned from just giving vaccines to military and, and vaccinating everyone, it's now something we don't think about anymore. It's not an epidemic that we worry about in 2020. In the Epidemics Part 2 episode, I mentioned covering a disease that not many had heard of, or at least I had never heard of it until I read about it in Akilah's book, A Culinary History of Atlanta. Pellagra hit the South hard, affecting 3 million Southerners, and 100,000 people died over a 40-year period. But what is pellagra, and why did it take so long to cure? The reason I learned about pellagra in a food history book is because the disease comes from corn, or that's what everyone first thought. Pellagra is a Spanish word, but the disease had been around for centuries, and it was considered a quote-unquote old-world disease, and it had affected Italy for centuries. In 1902, Dr. H. F. Harris reported the first case in the U.S., discovered at the Atlanta College of Physicians and Surgeons Clinic. It would be seven years later when the city of Atlanta becomes the center of a pellagra outbreak. In 1909, the first infected cases were in Grady Hospital, coming from near and far, Emma Fain and Sally Smith were the first two. The newspaper headlines read, quote, Ate cornbread. Death resulted. End quote. Which, let's be honest, would freak people out today if you saw that on the AJC homepage. At the time, doctors believed that pellagra was caused by eating moldy corn or cornmeal. Soon after those two women, A.J. Fisher, who was a young black farmer from Meansville, Georgia, died at Grady after suffering a month with skin lesions sores in his mouth, diarrhea, and dementia. And yes, those were the symptoms of Pellagra. Fincher died, but others who were suffering chose to end their lives before Pellagra could do it for them. There was a woman in Gainesville named Mrs. Millwood who cut her throat with a razor, and she was found by one of her 10 children. And this was just one of the hundreds of tragic suicide stories that I came across in the newspaper. So what happens immediately is that everyone stops eating corn or cooking with corn and cornmeal is dumped across the country and everyone turns to flour. Unsurprisingly, flour surges up and a barrel of flour costs $7.60, which was up from $2 cheaper just four months prior. With 2,000 cases in the South in four months, the federal government takes note of what's happening and it forms a task force or a committee to study the disease and the possible cures. Deaths have been prevalent in mental institutions or asylums, and so some doctors claim that it's found in, quote, the lower class because they're malnourished and more susceptible. Pellagra was disproportionately affecting low-income families, and then a result of that, more Black people than white were dying. While the Georgia Medical Association met in Macon in 1909, nine cases were under treatment at Grady, and eight in Henry County. And the discussions of that convention were tuberculosis and pellagra. And doctors are confused because one patient that they were studying, her name was Kate Bartow, died of pellagra, but swore that she had never eaten corn in her life. Dr. C. H. Lavender, who was the Surgeon General of the Public Health Service, says it's a disease of poverty, ill nourishment, bad hygiene surroundings and alcoholism which we know now is totally untrue but it is fascinating to step back and look at the story a century later pellagra would take the life of the porcupine at grant park zoo who was fed almost exclusively corn when one animal fell ill it got worse and then it eventually died the zoo general manager was convinced that it was because of pellagra so he convinced you know, doctors in the city to agree with him, and an emergency deal was brokered between the zoo and local bakeries to provide stale white bread for the animals in place of corn. Pelagra continues to be a problem for years to come because although it's being studied, scientists and doctors do not know how to cure it, let alone what's causing it. In 1911, the Tabernacle Church in downtown Atlanta, same Tabernacle I mentioned last week, um, pledged to open the first hospital solely to treat pellagra. The plans called for an annex to the Tabernacle Infirmary that would sit at 85 Lucky Street, and it would have beds for 21 paying patients and six charity beds. Now, the thing is, I don't think this ever actually got built or maybe it didn't open. Um, it sounded very sure, but just a year or two later, I found more articles calling for the need for a pellagra hospital in the South. So it just wouldn't make sense that we had one and they were calling for another one. In the same year, Fulton County decides that placards will not be required for homes for pellagra. And remember, in the other epidemics episode, I talked about people ripping the diphtheria placards off their doors. In 1912, there were 69 deaths in Atlanta and doctors were frustrated. And some of them just kind of threw out any possible causes. They thought it was sand fly bites, um, bad sewage, just grasping at straws. By 1914, the federal government was asked to fund a southern hospital. And this is brought about by the story of Sam Fortune, a poor rural farmer from South Georgia who brought his sick son into Atlanta for care at Grady. Grady Hospital would not take him because they knew that pellagra cases were not curable and that the patient could lay sick for months and months. A local company gave the dad a job and then finally a community outrage made greedy accept the child. But people are like, hey, we need a place that exists just for pellagra cases where people can come and be treated and not be turned away. Instead, what the government did was it started a task force that began doing experiments on pellagra patients at the Milledgeville Sanitarium. It was here and with this data that Dr. Joseph Goldberger, who was head of the pellagra commission, discovered that pellagra was caused by a, quote, one-sided diet, end quote. But he didn't exactly know what was missing. So by the following year, the doctor was curing the disease with dietary changes, In 1920, Goldberger and Edgar Seidensticker published a study on their findings, although highly problematic because they did not discuss the correlations of race and gender. But eight years later, Goldberger confirms that pellagra is caused by diet. But it's not until 1937, eight years after his death, that scientists discover what is missing from said diet, and that is niacin. Native Americans ground their corn with lye, which is niacin. And after their removal, enslaved people of the South made their grits with sweet corn high in niacin levels. But as more corn was eaten, we started importing corn grown in the Midwest, which had 30 to 50% less niacin. The cure for pellagra was more green vegetables, more dairy, more eggs, more meat, and less corn. And sadly, this was all figured out after 10,000 people lost their lives between the years of 1906 and 1916. The last thing we're gonna talk about today is one of the human immunodeficiency viruses, or HIV, that causes acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, or as it's better known, AIDS. Since the beginning of this epidemic, 76 million people have been infected with HIV and 33 million people have died of AIDS, and this is worldwide. This is much more recent history than I typically cover, but I have been working on getting interviews set up that will cover some of Atlanta's LBGTQ history, which is super rich in this city, Um, and it really played a part in the AIDS epidemic. AIDS came into national attention in 1981, when lots of us were alive. So I'm not going to go in depth into this history about the facts or the virus, but more its connections to Atlanta and then its current statistics today. Because Atlanta is home to the Center for Disease Control, local activists began organizing AIDS work in the city as early as 1983. And one of these organizations, AID Atlanta, or AID Atlanta, was one of the first, and it was staffed solely by volunteers that provided educational and service resources for those living with HIV AIDS. This is the South, so Atlanta activists dealt with blowback from conservative Christians and the Republican Party. Charles Stanley, who was then, and I still think now, the pastor of First Baptist Church, preached that AIDS was God's punishment for homosexuality. And J.B. Stoner, who was a white nationalist from North Georgia, led a mob to confront marchers in Forsyth County in 1987. The Atlanta Gay Center was founded in 1976 on a house along Ponce de Leon and eventually closed and reopened as the Atlanta Gay and Lesbian Community Center. It published a bi-weekly newspaper, operated a helpline, and it acted as a meeting place for several support groups. During the AIDS epidemic, it offered free testing. I wanted to end this series talking about HIV AIDS because a lot of people, me included, think of it first solely as a disease affecting homosexual males, and second as something that's over or part of history. But just two years ago, in 2018, the CDC labeled AIDS an epidemic in Atlanta. Downtown Atlanta numbers were comparable to a third-world country. More than 36,000 people were living with HIV, and get ready for this. 70% were Black and 7% were Latinx. The rate of Black males living with HIV is 5.4 times greater than White, and for Black females, that rate is 15.4% higher than their White counterparts. So this is a current issue, and it's something that you can get involved in or volunteer with. And then maybe one day, some podcaster can do an episode about the history of the ancient AIDS epidemic that was cured by a vaccine. So there you have it, the last installment of our epidemic history, the stories of typhoid, pellagra, and HIV AIDS. Thank you all for listening. Remember to leave a rating or a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and call the Archive Atlanta phone number. Leave me your Atlanta story. So um, I talked about that in last week's episode, but I'm going to post on social media this week as well. That phone number is 678-465-7161. I hope everyone has a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week.